0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptech, a robotics company based in Melbourne. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my guest today, Professor Rob Sparrow. Rob is a Professor at the Department of Philosophy at Monash University and an Adjunct Professor Centre for Human Bioethics. Welcome Rob and thanks very much for joining me today.
1: Oh, uh, good day. <laughs>
0: So being an ethicist in the field of robotics is very specialised. How many people worldwide are doing this?
1: There's more than you think, uh, in part because of funding pressures in the academy nowadays push people into applied research. And of course, the notion that robotics are going to change the world and change how everything Uh, is done is quite popular now. So there's a lot of people in applied ethics uh, who are now writing about the ethics of robotics. Uh, I'm actually one of the first people to write in that field. I started 20 uh, years ago, uh, really before people were quite so excited uh, about robots. And that was because robots are useful uh, tools for doing philosophical thought experiments. Uh, but then the field of robotics has progressed so far that now uh, there would be, I guess, several hundred people worldwide working in this field. Uh, the people who are known for it would be a much smaller community, uh, maybe 20 or so people who are well-known for work on the ethics of robotics.
0: So in terms of a uh, like collaboration worldwide, do you all talk to each other about each other about the work you're doing and i mean when when policy is being made are you consulted
1: uh, so yes and yes are the short answers uh, there are now uh big robo philosophy or robo ethics uh conferences i've given keynotes at the human robotics interaction uh, conference Sorry, keynote there uh there's a whole global circuit now of people talking about the ethics of robotics. Uh, uh, Philosophy and computing or computer ethics is a much more established uh, field, and so some of the work on robotics is taking place at these conferences that are also looking at uh, artificial intelligence or maybe just um, uh, ethical issues related uh, to computers. And um, yes, I think policymakers are very uh, conscious that there are ethical questions raised by robots. I mean, most obviously uh, about the prospect that people will be put out of work. And there's been a lot of writing about what sorts of policies might be necessary if we saw uh, large-scale technological unemployment. Uh, But there's a flourishing literature on sex robots. There's... uh, a high level of awareness that the use of robots in aged care settings uh, raises uh, issues around privacy, around uh, respect for older people, around the importance of human uh, contact. And so, um, yes, policymakers are taking that quite seriously. I guess the other place where we've seen this is with driverless vehicles, which are, are robots. And it's very clear that the ethical and policy issues are actually a really major barrier to the adoption of that technology. And that in some ways, the legal questions uh, which uh, relate to the ethical questions are actually the hardest uh, question. And the, the greatest barrier to adoption of uh, autonomous vehicles is actually how you uh, deal with um, insurance claims and who's responsible for the accidents and the old, who should they kill questions. And so there is report after report uh, being written about autonomous vehicles, and that is then being taken up in, uh, in legislation and in policy.
0: So in terms of autonomous vehicles, how far off do you think we are in Australia of actually adopting this?
1: So it's been really fascinating to watch uh, the range of dates uh, change markedly. So, uh, you know, I think people used to say 2022 uh, and now it's pushed out. You know, I've seen everything from 2022 to 2050. Uh, I, I must admit, you know, I'm not i um, I'm not an expert on the engineering side uh, of things. I, have been to lots of driverless vehicle conferences and I uh, have observed with some amusement that, you know, two people both with PhDs from Stanford will tell you something completely uh, different. The other fudge here, of course, is people will say, uh, you know, the sort of uh, automated braking systems are a version of vehicle autonomy and they're already on the roads and then other people were talking about completely driverless uh vehicles you know the safe bet is to say 20 years because no one will remember <laughs> what you <laughs> what you said
0: <laughs> so uh, we're going on the safety aspect yeah <laughs>
1: but but look um on fixed routes like driverless uh, buses, maybe a autonomy only lane on the big city link, you know the toll roads, yeah. that looks plausible to me in I guess five to ten years, but probably pushing out towards uh, ten uh, driverless vehicles you know on the streets of Shepparton or you know outs where the, maybe the mapping technologies and the signal technologies are not um are more expensive to roll out into those areas. Uh, you know that might be uh, further, yeah, <laughs> further away. I mean, to be to be frank, uh, people seem to be backing away from um, fully autonomous vehicles rapidly at the moment, and I presume that is because the testing in the United States, where they're actually on the roads, uh, has revealed some problems uh, at the long end of the distribution where they still can't avoid certain very rare accidents and that means that uh, people are anxious about putting them on uh, on the roads.
0: I suppose it's more from a liability issue because if you look at the stats I mean if I being a South African I could tell you the horrendous road accidents that happen there and amounts like 20,000 people a year is nothing like seriously that's the amount of people that are on the roads there um you know what are you actually tossing up here like one to twenty thousand i'd be going with the one but again like i I think it's the it's the liability issues
1: yeah i mean the thing here is that either the manufacturer or the person who's designed the algorithms becomes responsible for all the accidents and that shift in responsibility is ethically significant so Mm Uh, yes, human beings are bad, dri- are bad yeah. clearly bad drivers and in many circumstances machines would do better. But the fact is that if you or I crash, that's our problem and of course the people that, uh, that we hit. But no one wants to think I'm immediately going to become responsible for the small number of accidents that occur uh, when I put lots of vehicles on the roads. Yep,
0: Yeah. yeah. So you've researched projects underway on the ethical issues associated with robots, including military robots, uh, robotic companions, and robots in aged care. Let's start with the military robots and like what work are you doing there?
1: Uh, So I've got two uh, strands of research on um, military robots. And so the literature on military robots um, divides roughly speaking into issues related to uh, tele-operated weapon systems or surveillance systems. So drones, uh, understanding that drones could be tanks or trucks or submarines and not just um, quadcopters. uh, And uh, what's now known in the literature as um, lethal autonomous weapon systems or autonomous weapon systems, uh, which is where an onboard computer, Uh, is actually making uh, targeting decisions. And so these machines are releasing weapons uh, without a human being in the loop or maybe even on the loop. Uh, So I've been writing both about autonomous weapon systems. I was actually one of the first people to write about uh, the ethical issues uh, related to autonomous weapon systems in a paper called Killer Robots uh, back in 2006. and writing about drones. Uh, writing about drones. I've been interested in uh, the implications of teleoperation for what it means to be a warrior, really, and or, or for what we call the martial virtues. Uh, so it looks as though to be a good soldier is not only to have a certain skill set, but also to have uh, to have a certain what we call a role morality or certain ethics associated with being a soldier in which there are key virtues like bravery or mercy um, or you know perhaps a sense of justice there's a set of martial virtues and it's really quite hard to see how you can for instance be brave when you are firing a weapon uh, from a shipping container thousands of miles away from the target. Uh, from the targets. Now, the people in the uh, remotely piloted aircraft community uh, really don't like this argument because they are clearly involved in very high stakes, difficult operations. They suffer from a lot of um, stress and they take their work very seriously and they want that to be recognised. Uh, And so we are seeing a shift. For instance, people are starting to talk about the moral courage uh, or um, the courage to risk psychological in- injury in the context of um, remote weapon operations. But that really is a, a long way from the idea that you needed to be physically courageous uh, to be uh, to be a warfighter. Uh, so I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in um, the issues that arise when we start to... Um, teleoperate or perhaps give a capacity to autonomous, uh, for autonomous operations uh, in the context of um, submarine warfare and war at sea. And and I'm hoping, you know, a lot has been written about um, drones in the skies over, you know, over the Middle East and over Afghanistan, uh, but not much has been written about the future of um, war at sea. And so I've been writing about uh, whether uh, There are specific issues that arise in the context of war at sea. I've got a paper looking at whether um, uh, drones for naval uh, naval warfare uh, should be provided with the capacity to conduct search and rescue operations because classically in naval warfare having sunk the enemy ship uh, you are supposed to go around and try to rescue people who might be drowning or, or shipwrecked or stranded in the water. Uh, and the sort of systems that people are imagining for naval warfare at the moment simply wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, and that is to the detriment of the welfare of everyone uh, involved in war at sea, because the conventions around rescue are really quite strong and uh, benefit everyone involved in naval con- uh, conflict. So I've been writing, uh, writing about that recently. Uh, in the... Literature on autonomous weapons systems, uh, I've been trying to uh, develop an argument that explains why people have quite a strong intuition, or some people have uh, quite a strong intuition that there would be something wrong about sending robots to kill people. Uh, Turns out that intuition is much harder to um, explain or justify than people Uh, People think. And so I've been working on an argument that looks at uh, what we express about our enemy when we send robots to kill them, that looks at the meaning of the use of robots um, in combat and connects that uh, to a tradition in what's called just war um, theory of claiming that some weapons are simply evil in themselves in part because they fail to respect the humanity of our enemies and maybe autonomous weapon systems fail to respect the humanity of our enemies uh, in some way. And that that's quite a difficult argument, but uh, it really needs to be made because there are a lot of people out there working to prohibit, you know, in the hope of banning autonomous weapon systems. There's quite a movement in the um, AI and robotics community uh, to take a stance against the militarization of these, particularly autonomy, uh, and yet the the deep arguments explaining what's wrong with the use of autonomous weapon systems um, aren't fully explored yet. And so that's been uh, a project of mine over the last several years.
0: So a little bit off the cuff question here in terms of uh, people playing um, these gaming, the warfare games where they, they're killing um, dogs and things. I, I was reading an interesting article about that, that some games in Australia it's banned that you can actually kill dogs or be um you know, cruel to animal because you're saying that by playing these games, you're actually teaching people to do it because it's okay in games. So what what's your thoughts on that?
1: People are deeply conflicted about whether we should evaluate our activities in fantasy worlds, and the I mean, the clear way to think about this is the difference that we, uh, the difference in the way people respond to the idea of um, killing in video games. And everyone, frankly, nowadays, uh, maybe not literally everyone, Mm -hmm. but the vast majority of people have shot people in a computer game or in in virtual worlds or played some sort of uh, war game. And that's very much a part of our culture. Uh, But when you turn to um, games that are, for instance, racist or that might involve Uh, Sex crimes. Uh, So, games, there's a particularly unpleasant series of games coming out of uh, Japan that involved um, rape, virtual rape. And these are games involving CGI characters, so you can't make an argument that women are harmed in the filming or or whatever it is. Uh, And yet, people are very uncomfortable with the idea that you might enjoy. Uh, trying to rape someone in a in a video game it's remarkably hard to explain why we think it's okay to kill but not okay to rape in in these virtual worlds not obviously the ethics of the real activity is um reasonably well understood and these are both terrible things but we um treat uh what people express when they're playing games quite differently depending upon whether it's killing which somehow we think is ordinary and these other crimes that we uh, are are still very uncomfortable uh, with and that's very hard to explain i do think that um the argument that what we do in these games doesn't affect us at all uh it is um wildly implausible and, and for instance one thing that we know is that advertisers now do product placement in video games and that gun manufacturers compete to design the guns that people use uh, in computer games because they know that if they can get their aesthetic uh, recognized on screen people will buy more of their their guns so clearly there's a connection to behavior at the same time not everybody who plays these games goes out and commits a massacre uh for instance uh these are empirical questions uh it's um i have to say the research here is massively contested and conflicted and you can find some people who say video the link between say violent video games and aggression has been clearly shown and you can find other people who say that there's no connection Uh, i've been interested in these arguments about not about how it shapes our behavior but what it says about us. And again, this is using uh, an Aristotelian notion of virtue or character, where you you think it matters what kind of person you are. And then you wonder whether a gentle person or a nice person uh, plays a game that involves dismembering people, uh, for instance. And if you found your quiet, gentle partner laughing uproariously saying, look, look, I tore their head off. Uh, you might start to think, actually, they're not the person that I thought they they were. And so I'm interested in the ethics of actions in virtual worlds, and actually also in our treatment of robots. Uh, not in relation to how we, will shape our future behavior because that's just too uh, too contested in the literature, but in terms of what it says about us.
0: Yeah, so there is a, the Boston Spot video that has been on since 2015 and that's been watched about 20 million times where they actually hit the Boston dog and they push it over and... Um, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I think I watched it and I went, stop doing that. And I can tell you anecdotally, one of my robots was used at an event, and um, it's a little sandbot. It's a very social little robot. And one of the guests, Van, handled it slightly in that he just pushed it off the dance floor, and all the women um, went to him, Don't hurt the sandbot. They actually dubbed her Sally. And this is in the, in the space of an hour and a half how quickly they. They bonded with her. So I wish you were there because you could have written two papers on this.
1: <laughs> yes, I actually did. I, I mentioned having given a keynote at an HRI conference and the title of that paper was Kicking a Robot Dog and it was precisely about the ethics of uh, so-called cruelty to robots because clearly the robots themselves don't suffer anything. But yet some people do have an intuition that there's an ethics of how we treat these uh, machines. And if that is the case, then it has to be either because uh, we think it will shape our behaviour in the future or because of what it says about us or what it reveals about us. Uh, And that latter argument is the one that I've been developing in
0: work recently. So um, bringing it closer to home, you've got kids. Do they play these games? Do you allow them to do it?
1: Uh, Interestingly, I have... um, two daughters and uh, the world of computer games is uh depressingly gendered uh for instance and so i'm not really aware of them playing games that involve killing i mean that you know they're into minecraft at the moment and uh in part i think uh as a way of relating to the people uh, around them. And, and that is one of the things that people need to um, keep in mind when they're talking about the ethics of these these games is that they're often a mode of being social, uh, for instance, and that the relationships between human beings are something that we need to uh, evaluate ethically as well. If people are being bullied or are, are being uh, subject to racist abuse, while they're playing Fortnite, that's a problem. You know, that's uh, as much of, as a problem as it would be if they were uh, being bullied in the in the real world. Uh, so I, I haven't had to confront that with my daughters yet. Uh, I must admit, I've played lots of games that involve uh, uh, shooting people, and, and there is a, you know, there have been moments where I thought, actually, this is really wrong and I should not be enjoying, uh, enjoying this. And so sometimes <laughs> I have, uh, I have pulled back from them for that reason.
0: There's a character flaw here, Rob. <laughs> so, but it's an interesting point that you've made that it's, it's gender based and it, I expect it's more uh, boys, young men playing these games that I, I can't even in my wildest dream think I'm going to play a game where I'm actually going to shoot someone. It just doesn't, it just the notion just doesn't appeal to me.
1: Right. Uh, You know, we live in a deeply patriarchal culture, uh, regrettably, and that filters through to the uh, expectations around gaming and the design of of games. I mean, in some ways, I think it's actually, uh, you know, as the game design community realizes that um, women do play games and that actually um, there's an enormous market for uh, games that women enjoy, uh, I think people are rethinking some of their assumptions about what makes for uh good entertainment that doesn't stop you know call of duty or ghost recon or whatever it is are still existing and you know some of the most popular games in the world are, are war games and um I, I do think we need to take the politics of these things seriously, in the same way that we take the politics of other media seriously. So racism in the design of games, for instance, strikes me as being very problematic, uh, and um, also the the gender politics uh, uh, as well. I mean. It, the sexualization of women in the context of these gaming uh these gaming environments like the character design is often uh, quite sexist uh, or um expectations the way uh, the assumptions that people make about the people playing them the options uh that that are made available uh, there is a whole world of um of ethical questions that arise around um uh, our action in virtual worlds and the design of virtual worlds.
0: Well, I suppose that that leads us to the the discrepancy in artificial intelligence and the, the biases of people programming. So if predominantly it's males um, designing these games, of course, there's going to be a bias because it, it's there's not enough diversity and representation on all levels. So whether it's um, having, you know, lesbians or gays or whoever just a mixture of people and cultures that go listen this is highly offensive I don't think we should be putting this in the game we may end up having no games but you know like so be it I don't know what the answer there is
1: I mean, I think we would get better games and we will get better robots and better artificial intelligence by involving more diverse communities in the design uh, of these systems. I mean, I I think people should be embracing diversity here uh, for what it adds, not seeing as this something something that you have to do because the kind of so-called PC police are forcing you to do it. Uh, But because we live in a very diverse world, And narrowness of thinking is bad design philosophy. Uh, uh, People whose uh, products are sensitive to the diversity of users uh, and all the different ways in which people might want to relate to technology uh, will sell more products. Uh, And so um, the design community should be concerned to avoid that sort of the narrowness of, of having only a particular sort of person designing these systems. Uh, for uh, reasons that they already recognize as being important, uh, which is these systems will be more user-friendly, they will be uh, more popular and they will be less likely to cause some terrible online controversy that sinks your company if you have um, involved people, a, a wide range of people in the design and testing process.
0: Well, I'll leave that one with you for another two years and we'll catch up again and see where your daughters have ended up and what they're playing. So so you work in applied ethics in relation to the application of real or near-term robots in various roles. So I'm intrigued, what are real or near-term robots?
1: Uh, so one of the things about real or near-term robots is that people tend not to recognise them as being robots. Uh, actually, the definition of a robot is, um, you know, remarkably fluid, and you know people really want to see uh, artificial human beings. That's their core notion of a, of a robot, or or you know the robots from Star War, uh, Star Wars. People are less likely to recognize the ATM that um, you know they bank with as being a robot, or their dishwasher, or their washing machine uh, as as being a robot, or production line robots. Uh, which have been around for decades. And, um, you know, apart from some stuff about uh, the implications for the relation between labour and capital and unemployment, there's really not much written about the ethics of turning over, um, you know, production lines uh, to robots. So there are way more robots in the world than people uh, recognise uh, when it comes to the future of uh, of robots, and there, is, there are reasons why philosophers and ethicists like to write about the future, uh, in part because people haven't thought about it as much and in part because you might be able to do something uh, more about it. Uh, clearly, uh, the mining equipment, And agriculture robots. I've just published a paper in Precision Agriculture of all places about um, the ethical issues arising out of the use of robotics in agriculture. Uh, So I think we'll see more and more uh, essentially industrial or kind of work focused robots in a a broader range of roles. Uh, Toys are big, Uh, robotic toys are. um, Uh, already here and that we will see more sophisticated behaviour from uh, robotic toys. Uh, I am very sceptical about the um, companion robots uh, and about the robot butlers. I I simply don't think the technology is there um, to entertain people in the long term with a, a companion robot or to Uh, do much around the house other than move dirt around uh, with the robotic vacuum cleaners. Uh, So I'm sceptical about those. There's a large literature on aged care robotics, and I've been writing about aged care. Again, I was one of the first people to write about the ethics of aged care robotics. Uh, And, again, I think that literature on the ethics is way ahead of the technology, um, that this is something... uh, driven by the desire of engineers to work on something other than military robots um the military robots are um, are here and that's a big question for the future that's it's interesting to think about why military robots are progressing so quickly and it's for two reasons one uh there's an enormous amount of money to develop them and to use them the price point for a domestic robot is very different than the price point for selling a robot to the military Uh, and also because killing people is actually easier than looking after them uh, for instance so targeting someone you know identifying someone targeting them shoot shooting someone that's something that we can do whereas conducting a natural language conversation for an extended period of time or giving someone a helping hand uh, is actually still beyond our technical capabilities. Uh, so the military robots and then driverless vehicles. Uh, I expect people will continue to write about those for um, you know the next decade. Uh, the next decade. Do you think I've missed any there? That's the kind no, of.
0: No, I think that's quite all encompassing. So companion robots like i'm i'm hesitating a little bit to go down that track but tell us about it and what's happening on the market uh
1: so um for if you remember ibo sony robot the sony robot dog ibo was marketed very um aggressively as a robot companion uh the um, that we will replace our pets uh, with robots and that the robot pets will somehow be easier to manage. Uh, you know, you can just turn them off and put them in the cupboard when you want to go overseas instead of having to find someone to look after your actual uh, actual dog. So the, the literature on companion robots uh, started with discussion about the ethics of um, robotic pets and the idea that you might provide lonely elderly people with some sort of uh, robot companion, um, you know, something that sits by the side of the bed and that entertains them with uh, with conversation, and people are still working on that uh, project. Uh, of course, there's also literature on sex robots. And um, I mean, a- actually, describing sex robots as companion robots really flags... Uh, some confusion in that literature because uh, the evidence from the sex industry is that um, when people are purchasing sex, what they're really interested in is companionship. Uh, but the people designing sex robots are still designing them for sex uh, in part because um getting a humanoid robot that can move and is robust enough that it doesn't need to be supported by a whole room full of graduate students uh, is really difficult. Uh, So there is now quite a flourishing literature. I I would get a request to review a paper on the ethics of sex robots, I think one every week at the moment. Uh, There is a big literature on the ethics of sex robots. And it is really... I mean, it's driven in part by the media fascination uh, with sex robots. And this idea of building an artificial wife, you know, that, that a man is going to build a woman is, is actually, it's one of the founding myths of engineering. If you look back into the, you know, the Pygmalion stories and the, the kind of all the sort of ur-texts of engineering, the great technician demonstrates his greatness by building himself a wife. Uh, and so this you know idea that a male engineer is going to build the perfect female companion is a- actually it's like the unconscious of engineering, uh, and so people are uh, pursuing uh, that project. Uh, to be frank, I think that's quite a silly project. Uh, I mean, I am interested in the ethics in part because it does raise all these questions about the representational politics of robots, and you can't see. Images of sex robots, which are really sex dolls, when it comes down to the robotic stuff, is a bit of a myth, because again, um, the state of the art robotic sex robot has an animatronic head. is is a latex doll with an animatronic head which talks to you in the same way that your mobile phone talks to you, Mm. uh, but with a bit of uh, face musculature. uh, And then it's not running around the house or anything, and it's not moving uh when you have sex with it uh so you can't see these things without thinking that they're deeply sexist and that this idea that you are going to design your robot by choosing its breast size and shape of its nipples and stuff is (laughs) very creepy and does um you know it's hard not to think that it's deeply sexist having said that of course we live in a culture in which pornography has been normalized and this just looks like a new form of uh, pornography and the ethical questions are very similar uh, to questions around the ethics of the um, design distribution of manufacture distribution and use of pornography um I think one of the things that will happen is that people will realise that the real market for sex robots is actually robot fetishists or doll fetishists, and that um, ordinary people uh, really crave human companionship and robots are not going to substitute for human companionship for a long time, if ever. Uh, And so the the media interest in sex robots is all out of proportion for the actual market uh, for them. Uh, which is the same people who were buying these um sex latex sex dolls A- and that community are either people who are very very shy with some sort of social anxiety disorder uh or people who are turned on by the idea of having either having sex with or indeed just playing with dolls um and and so the uh, I think the market for sex robots is um is much more than most people working in the field believe.
0: Yeah, I I watched a a video clip on an English um, chat morning show, like like Good Morning Australia whatever, and um, the guy said he had this sex doll that was sort of sitting in his house as though it's a member of the family, and I think uh, one of the the interviews was a woman and she was just absolutely appalled as appalled as I was. I just went like, this guy's just creepy. And I, you know, if you want to do this sort of thing, I'd suggest don't broadcast it on live TV to the rest of the world. But again, to your point of the media, making like a big hoo-ha of it, I think a lot of um, the misconceptions and this, you know, robots going to replace everyone. It's media driven. Anyone that works with robots knows like, again, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles, maybe in ten years' time, if that you know no one i'd be very careful to put base to things today about where we think robots are going to be
1: yes um look i again one of the things about uh about sex robots is you do need the i mean it is easy to f- to feel that they 're creepy and it 's easy to think that this is part of a you know an expression of a sexist culture. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I do think that if we're we're willing to tolerate uh, pornography, uh, you know, in uh, in film and in uh, magazines and literature, uh, we're going to have to think hard about whether there's actually anything different uh, when you're building uh, building a, a model uh, as well, and you know. Everyone finds everyone else's sexual pleasures creepy uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at, at one, one level, at least there's that, that danger. So I, I do think there's something, um, I mean, that's why I'm interested in writing about this stuff is to try to work out whether uh, robots are different in some way than other representations. You know, think of a statue. You can make a sexist statue. You can make a racist statue. You can make a statue uh, that says something about you. What kind of person would make that statue? Uh, and you can do all of that with a robot, but you need to think about what it being a robot, why that should be different. Now, I mean, there are there are things to say there, uh, but I do think that we need to not treat robots as though they were completely separate to the ethical issues that we or the ethical issues that robots raise are are continuous with the ethical issues that are raised by the design of video games or the you know sale of pornography or uh, the way we relate to older citizens more generally which is to wish that they would go away and not you know not Uh, stress our tax system. Uh, So a lot of the things that I think are problematic about um, the design and manufacture of robots in some of these fields are also there in broader social dynamics as well.
0: Well, we're living in a, I mean, an increasingly um, aging population, you know, like I I think we, we, 85 is now the, the average age for Australian women and 80 if you're a man, Um, In countries such as Japan, they're living even longer and they're using robots there a lot, you know, for instance, Pepper and things. Now, I'm a bit of a proponent as you are, like, why would you have a robot if there's a human being that can help you? But, like, if you don't have a human being to help you and robots can, there's assistive robots that can help you, um, I go, well, then use that. But, But the first port of call is obviously human beings like that. We, we just social and it's, it's good for us to be in connection with other people. What's your view on how you think this is going to um, progress in Australia? And, I mean, the government's emphasis is on people stay in your homes as long as you can.
1: There's an enormous role for technology in aged care. Uh, and some of that technology is very simple things like replacing the steps at the front of your house with ramps and putting rails in the bathroom and, you know, taking things off the top shelf and putting them onto a lower shelf so that you can uh, reach them. So the design of the built environment and also of the social environment, uh, these are technologies and they are things that we should be thinking seriously about and we should be taking uh the fact that we are all vulnerable at the beginning of life and at the end of life seriously and not building technologies that just work uh when you are you know fit fit and healthy uh, i am deeply skeptical about um the prospects for robots in aged care uh, in part for the reasons that you describe that um loneliness kills people uh, uh, what people in aged care context typically need is human contact and someone to talk to and someone who cares about them. And so if you are doing a task that could be done by a human being with a robot, you're actually damaging the care uh, of people. Now, uh, people working in this field, and I have, you know, lots of people who I respect and I meet on a regular basis that are working in... uh, in aged care uh, robotics. And they will typically say, look, I'm not doing this to replace people. I'm doing it to supplement uh, people, or I'm doing it so that the human care can be provided in a more meaningful and rewarding fashion. So if I'm replacing the cleaner uh, with the robot, that's because the person who was doing the cleaning uh, can now be A paid you know, paid carer or social uh, social worker. Uh, I'm afraid I think that's naive about the economics of the aged care uh, setting. That when uh, when when it becomes possible to replace human beings with machines that are cheaper, uh, the providers of aged care, particularly in the private sector, uh, and that you know, one of the things we've seen with COVID is what a difference it makes whether aged care is provided by by the government or by the private uh, private sector, but particularly in the private sector and also to a lesser extent in the public sector, uh, I think we will see um, any savings essentially absorbed by the providers and then that will be bad, uh, bad for people. Uh, this debate goes differently if you're imagining care in institutional contexts or care in the home uh, because that idea that, uh, I mean, people don't want to move into care facility uh, facilities. People typically realise that their lives will change dramatically and not for the better uh, when they move out of, their own, out of their own home. And so if technologies could help people stay in their own home or could connect people with other people, that would be great. I simply haven't seen a use case for a domestic robot uh, that other that looks like a robot and isn't already you know the dishwasher or the yeah. washing machine or or the uh, maybe the vacuum cleaner uh, now. I simply haven't seen a plausible use case for a robot that actually would help people um stay in their homes longer. The one thing where you know I think this is less clear is the telepresence robots. Uh, and there's a connection here to the whole notion of telemedicine, which we've all suddenly started going to the doctor over over Zoom, uh, Zoom recently. Uh, so there are people who think that telepresence robots are going to um, actually enhance human connections. Uh, I think of this as Skype on a stick. If you actually see these robots, they really are often a little, you know, Um, toy truck base with a with a um a post and then a laptop on top and it can drive around you know you can remotely uh log onto it and drive it around and you can drive the laptop up to your mother and start talking to her on skype that only makes sense if you can't um, sorry, I'm just realizing you may have one of these behind you. <laughs>
0: oh. They're sitting here, pride or place. Look, look. In essence, you, you're quite correct, and I agree with you. But I think it's the it's more the mobility that if you're dialing into someone's house and you can't find your parent, that you can you can actually whiz around. It's quite right. It is just another piece of technology, and it's how you adopt it, and whether you think there's a reason for you to be doing it. So yes, yes. Yeah.
1: So I, I mean. Everyone's a critic, you know, you know and my job, is, my job is a professional critic. I mean, yeah. my job is to try to think the thoughts that other people aren't willing to, to think about these technologies or, or aren't thinking about these technologies. Uh, so I do, you know, I do wonder with the telepresence machines, I wonder sometimes whether you couldn't do much of this with alert pendants or, you know, mobile phones. Now, you know, most of us, if we're calling our Uh, calling our parents, we do it on the mobile phone. Uh, The other question here, of course, is whether you end up with a net increase or a net decrease in the benefits of human contact when you introduce telepresence. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I think we've all recognized now is that this kind of on-screen interaction uh, just is not satisfying in the way that having a conversation with a person in the room uh, is. And so if you had the choice between your son or daughter coming to visit you and popping in on the telepresence uh, robot, I think you would always choose the coming to visit, or at least you should, maybe. I mean, often people end up being slightly socially phobic, Once they realize that they can deal with other people on on screens, precisely because the presence of another human being, uh, which can be comforting, can also be threatening. Uh, But people should embrace human contact. And then the question is, do you get more or less of it when you introduce telepresence? That's an empirical sociological question. Uh, But I I haven't really seen the data on that. And I do worry that there will be situations where I think I should really go and visit mum today. And if I didn't have a telepresence robot, I would go and visit mum today. But because I've got a telepresence robot, I don't. If that happens, then even those machines will end up being bad for people. Uh, that's an empirical question.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a flip side. But if you look at it from the the positivity that I can't get to my mom for whatever I live in Sydney and my mom's in Melbourne, then these are just the ideal solution. And whether you phone or not, like, again, as I say, it's a piece of technology, how you use it and your adoption of it. And for some people, they would just think this is just actually the best thing ever. Um, There is actually a study going on in Australia now with, uh, with aged people all over the age of 75 with these telepresence robots, I can give you that much information. So probably by the time we go to air, we may actually have the, um, this study may have been concluded and they are actually, they're looking at three robots and the adoption rate of the robots for these people and what they actually think of it and how much they're using it. So I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what the, the study actually um, comes up with and, and how these people have experienced the technology
1: okay i mean i I do think we need to we we need to be careful about armchair theorizing about this stuff and that is you know that's what i'm doing here yeah we also need to be conscious that um studying human beings is really hard uh for instance and, and that often things like the mere fact that you have a study uh changes the results that you get and so you know there's a lot of Papers written about Paro, uh, for instance, the robotic seal yeah. as a companion, aged care companion yeah. uh, robot, and they show that people love Paro. Uh, I have, I really want to, want to see a result that, uh, a study that controls for the impact of sending in all your graduate students to interview people about what they feel about the robot, uh, because that might be. I mean, this is actually well known. It's called the Hawthorne effect in social science, where you the, the putting the, uh, the study in place actually changes the way that people behave. And, and so I think a lot of the research in human-robotics interaction uh, suffers from a lack of controls often. Like what's the alternative? What, what are we controlling against? And also fails to take into account. The presence of the observers, or, or the the way in which the process of data collection may itself have positive impacts on the well-being of the people being studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I you know my sense is that a lot of these robots are used with great enthusiasm when you know that someone's going to come and ask you about it, mm-hmm. and then when the te- when the study ends, uh, people lose interest and they end up in the cupboard. Uh, but again, that's armchair. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: That's a suspicion, but I, I do think that's something that people need to be looking at, is the studies need to be longitudinal and they need to control for the impact of the research team. Um, anyway, I, I mean, I, I too await for bated breath for the results of studies of telepresence.
0: I look at it and I go, in essence, we're social creatures and we want to connect with other people. You know, like this is in essence what we're about, like your, your fundamental um, driving force and happiness is how strong are your social connections to people around you. And there's a Harvard study that bears this out over 50 years. It's not how much money you've got or who you are or what you are. It's how strong are your social connections. This is what gives us meaning.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and so then the question is, can we design technology that increases those connections in the right way? And the evidence on this is still not in. But Mm. there's some suggestion that having a lot of Facebook friends doesn't (laughs) achieve, you know, doesn't achieve that. And maybe spending a lot of time on Zoom uh, doesn't uh, achieve that. That that someone who is well connected on Zoom. Uh, may not have the same results as someone who has a small number of friends, but they actually met them in the park or the cafe. Um, but again, this stuff is, you know, this is... Um, uh, one of the lessons here is that studying uh, robots in the world also requires understanding the world. Yeah. And, and under- requires, I mean, I was really pleased to hear you say that, about the importance of sociality for human well-being. Uh, Because that's not always recognised by people working uh, in the the literature and the practice of the literature on aged care robots and the practice of aged care uh, robots. People can get very fixated on providing the service, uh, for instance, and and forget that human welfare is is about relationships and it's about social context. Um, So, you know, this is we need these conversations to be taking place between gerontologists and sociologists and philosophers and engineers uh, to make sure that this technology works well.
0: Yeah, definitely. My philosophy is human contact above all else. Um, technology steps in when humans humans can't be there for some reason, but otherwise human contact without a doubt um, is, is the way for me. So looking at medicine and um, AI and doctors and telehealth, and this touches a little bit on just what we've covered here, but how do you see this going forward now, especially with COVID and you've you know mentioned that um, Zoom consultations is now okay with doctors. I mean, again, I suggest like maybe, uh, you know you can have a zoom consultation there is something that you don't actually need to see yours. so i've got a headache or but again even that example i would think well i need to see my doctor But it's a persistent headache because he may actually need to examine me and how are you going to do this via zoom or telehealth
1: mm. uh, yes I, I must admit i wish people had had enough notice to design the studies. Uh, to look at what has happened uh, to the quality of healthcare once consultations have uh, moved online. Uh, There is a lot of um, stuff coming up now, uh, coming out now about um, massive decreases in patient numbers in hospitals with uh, particularly premature births, uh, but also heart attacks. I mean, there's been a real change in who presents the hospital in the current context. Uh, and it's very hard to work out why that is and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it may be that people are having heart attacks and at home, not recognizing them as such, are not presenting, or it uh, could be that uh, because they're not, ex- you know, they're not exercising during the course of their work, they're not stressing out their hearts. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff yeah. uh, going on at the moment. Uh, I do think again that a lot of uh, what's going on in a, in, a, um, in a medical consultation is actually interpersonal and social. And, and it is very strange how poorly these on-screen technologies communicate that stuff. That, that it's, You would have thought that audio plus visual would give you most of what you need, uh, but it clearly doesn't. I mean, it, it clearly, there's something about being in the room with someone uh, that we notice and respond, uh, respond to. Uh, and, I, you know, I pay attention to this because I have to do all my teaching online uh, nowadays, and it is very hard to get a classroom conversation going on when people uh, are on the screen. Uh, so telemedicine... Uh, one thing I think people need to be thinking more about there is obsolescence cycles, and this is something that i 've written uh about I think this is a problem for instance with the uh, um you know the smart house concept people have been talking or even the internet of things uh and we 're starting to see that with uh, kind of you know Google and Siri and linking up to your lighting system and your stereo and whatnot uh but the fact that all these devices get replaced and the standards change and there's so many different devices i think we all i mean maybe because you're an engineer this isn't isn't true for you but nothing in our household connects the way it should you know you are constantly uh, dealing with clutches uh, yeah. where, where you know that in theory this device should talk to that device and it should all be magic, but in practice you can only get it going if you're using Bluetooth at half its capacity or, or whatever it is. And I think that makes a big difference in practice with with telemedicine. That it's one thing to say here's a device and it's going to read uh, your blood pressure or it's going to tell us you know. Whether you're physically active or not, uh, but if three years later you've changed your IT system or the protocols have changed or you know the sexy new device is something else, uh, then in the long term that's going to have a real impact uh, on this stuff. Um, more data isn't always good. Uh, for instance, that we can you know you can gather an enormous amount of data and not um learn very much (laughs) uh, very much from it uh there are specific problems related to some of the issues we're talking about earlier with driverless vehicles and the shift in responsibility Uh, for instance if people are at all motivated by what's called defensive medicine where you worry about getting something wrong, are you worried about being, your practice being sued because you missed the symptom, uh, then the moment you put on a smartwatch that traces your heart rhythms, uh, chances are that you're going to be constantly told that you should race to emergency, yeah. uh, because if the thing says, look, everything's okay, and you die, someone is going to get, uh, get sued. Uh, so, you know there is there's real dangers of overdiagnosis uh in this uh in this area um i mean again one of the things i think people just need to be doing here is field trials you know people need not just to prove the technology um, in the ideal environment and as someone who works in the industry you know, I'm sure you've seen the, the the video of the robot working perfectly and you know yourself that that has been edited together uh, from, you know, 20 <laughs> hours of cursing and not understanding uh, why it's not doing what, doing what it's supposed to. And, and you know, the difference between the way these things work when you've got a research team about it and you can tell patients what they're supposed to be doing and what happens when someone has a five-minute consultation and yep. the doctor gives them a device and says, here, go and hook this up?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, that makes a big difference. And, and and medicine's an area where it really matters what works. Yep. Uh, and so, um, you know, and what works is a practical matter. It's, it requires field trials. Um, one thing I've been writing about recently is... Um, the role of trust in medicine and the difference between trust as reliability and maybe trust as vulnerability uh, for instance so you know people often compare the machine to the doctor and say look the machine is more accurate but that's only part of the story because it, you know hopefully the doctor cares about you and that caring has therapeutic i mean it is practically important, but it also has therapeutic value and so replacing uh human judgment with machine judgment even when the machine judgment is more accurate won't always give you uh, a better re- a better result um, and then you've got to look at the economics as uh, uh, as well to um people in medicine will also say, look, this is going to be great. All our patient administration is going to be, you know, we'll have a voice recorder. We'll have put my phone on the desk. It'll record the whole interview and transcribe it. And that'll get uploaded to our electronic medical records. And now I don't need to take patient notes anymore. Uh, And they think that that means that the doctor is going to spend more time talking because they're not spending uh, not writing notes. Yeah. And my suspicion is that actually what's going to happen is the consultations will get shorter uh, because it's... And, and the, you know, we've all had that experience where you're talking to the doctor while they're typing and that divided attention is already problematic. Yeah. But at least while they're typing it in, you get to talk to them. And, and what happens in that space of communication can be clinically important if they don't have to type it in, because it's all being sucked out of the ether uh, by magical devices, uh, the conversations in the clinic might actually end up being worse. Um, So, But again, this is a sort of, it's a worry, it's armchair speculation, and the, um, the way to resolve that matter is to do you know, randomised clinical trials with longitudinal components where you look at what happens. And you do this before you introduce the technology. I mean, too often we introduce the technology and then we study it.
0: Yeah, you go Uh, backwards.
1: Yeah.
0: Robert, well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. You and I can uh, chat on for another two hours because I've got many more questions, so maybe another podcast. But in closing, um, you've written a lot of papers. So if our listeners um, want to get hold or read some of it, where can they find you?
1: Uh, so I finally conceded to having my own uh, website. Uh, which is very gaggily named uh, RobSparrow.com because uh, I wasn't paying enough attention to the social differences between .com and .net. Uh, but uh, you can access my personal website has all of uh, has full text versions of all of my papers as usual. You know, googling me at Monash will uh, usually uh, usually work uh, to bring that site up uh, as well. Uh, if we have the option of posting a link, I might suggest that we uh, we post a link, but yes, uh, there is, um, for my sins, I have now written a lot about uh, the ethics of AI uh, and robotics, and I, I, you know, hope that's a useful contribution.
0: Oh, it's fabulous. I've seen your paper, so I will most definitely put the link in, and... Um Uh, Thank you so much for your time. I think we've, uh, as I mentioned, another podcast in the future, so we'll work that into it. And uh, for the listeners, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks' time again. And uh, if you have anyone that you want me to interview, please feel free to let me know. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you.